deity. Because Jesus is God. The scriptures use the expression son of God, which means he's God. It also refers to him as being uh, the fullness of the Godhead. The Godhead is composed of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods. There's only one God, one being, but there are three divine, eternal personalities that make up that God. Now, we don't understand all of that in this life. We may not understand it when we get to heaven. But that's what the Bible says. And we're trying to concentrate right now upon the deity of Jesus. We looked at, for example, and I'll just briefly mention these things, that he was sinless. Never committed any sins. And what mortal has ever done that? Well, he's not a mortal. But he's a human, was a human. Also, we noticed that he is eternal. Had no beginning, and he'll have no end. He's everlasting. We've noticed also that he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows our hearts. And he is going to judge the secrets of our hearts in the day of judgment. We mentioned also that he's omnipotent. He has all power. That he is the creator. There was one day a group of scientists got together and they decided that Man had come a long ways and no longer needed God. And so they picked one scientist to tell God that they were through with him. The scientist walked up to God and said, God, we've decided that we no longer need you. We're to the point that we can clone people and do many miraculous things so why don't you just go on and get lost? Well, God listened very patiently and kindly to the man. And after the man was through talking, God said very well, how about this? Let's say we have a man-making contest. To which the scientist replied, okay, great. But God said now, we're going to do this just like I did back in the old days with Adam. The scientist said, sure, no problem. And he bent down and grabbed himself a handful of dirt. And God just looked at him and said, no, no, no. You go get your own dirt. The Lord is our creator. He created all things, and he sustains all things. He also has the power of life and death. He said, one day I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again, referring to his own body. He let the Romans crucify him, and then he was raised from the dead with his own power. Then we notice that he forgave sins, and he continues to do so. And nobody can do that but God. And we cited a number of examples when he did that. He accepted worship. Angels cannot accept worship, and they refuse to. Men sometimes will accept it and should not. Jesus accepted worship because he is deity. 
We talked about his virgin birth. Had no human father. Mary the virgin gave birth to Jesus. And then we looked at his resurrection, or I think that's about where we want to start today. When we turn over to Romans 1, verses 3 and 4, we read there that uh, concerning his son, referring to Jesus Christ, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So that accounts for his fleshly nature when he was incarnated and took upon himself human, a human body. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was declared, referring to Jesus, who was declared to be the Son of God with power according to his resurrection. The resurrection is what the apostles preached that convinced people that Jesus was no ordinary man, that he was sent by God to this earth. Now, I think one of the strongest proofs of the Lord's resurrection is the empty tomb. Everybody knew where, well I say everybody, those in authority, his disciples, knew where they placed his body. It was in the, the tomb never used before by Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. And they even had guards come, Roman guards. So they knew the tomb. Later on the tomb was empty. Well now how do you account for that empty tomb? What happened to Jesus' body? Well, the chief priests and the Pharisees were afraid that the disciples would steal it away. They remember Jesus said, after three days, and I will rise again. So they had guards at the tomb. I believe they were Roman guards. They had a big stone that rolled up to enclose that tomb, and that stone was sealed. The Jewish leaders and his enemies did not steal the body away. Later on, they may have wished they had, so that when the apostles preached his resurrection, they could have brought it out. Had they had the Lord's dead body, and Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and said, he's been ascended to heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God, he's reigning now over his kingdom. And all they would have had to do was to bring out his body. Jesus was what we would call today a celebrity. How many people knew him and recognized his face? The multitudes followed him, and they would have said, well, here it is. He's not been raised from the dead. He's still dead. But they could not do that. And think about the disciples. To have stolen the body away, that would have been a difficult problem. The disciples would have had to go past the guards. They would have had to break the seal they'd have to roll that stone away and if they had been asleep and the penalty of going to sleep as a guard was, was death that would have waked them up then they'd have to carry the body out past the guards well that would have been almost an impossible thing and also consider that if the disciples had stolen the body surely they would not have given their lives for preaching what they knew was a lie. 
However, all the apostles, with John being the one exception, died because they preached his death, burial, and resurrection, and they were, of course, witnesses of what they had seen. So what happened to the body? Well, the only answer is it was resurrected. The enemies didn't have it. The disciples didn't steal it. And this proves and proved to the disciples his messiahship. And that's what they preached. Now, let's look at another point. We're talking about the deity of Jesus Christ. One thing that we want to notice is the application of the proper name Jehovah to Jesus. That was the proper name, Jehovah. Now, there are folks who say, well, no, you should pronounce that Yahweh. Let me explain a little bit. The Hebrews did not write with vowels. All their words were consonants. They didn't have A-E-I-O-U and maybe Y. And so, uh, they, and they stopped pronouncing the name of, we call it Jehovah today. And so after some generations, they didn't know how to pronounce it. And so what they decided they would do, they would take the vowels from Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord, take those vowels and put it with the consonants that represented his name Jehovah. They were J-H-V-H, and they added the consonants, comes Jehovah. Or Y-H-W-H, and that becomes, uh, what's the other word for Jehovah? Uh, Yahweh. Well, when they started putting vowel points to indicate the vowels, about the 16th century they used the vowels of Adonai, and so that's why we pronounce it Jehovah. The others think that was an arbitrary selection of vowels, which it was, so we really don't know how to pronounce his proper name. But being a traditionalist, I'm going to stick with Jehovah. And this word or this name is applied to Jesus. Now we think Jehovah, that's the name of God. It is. And Jesus is called Jehovah. He's called God. I'll give you a few examples. There are a number of them. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18 says, For thus saith Jehovah that created the heavens. Now, what do we read in the New Testament? Jesus is the creator. Jehovah that created the heavens, the God that formed the earth and made it, that established it and created it, not a waste, that formed it to be inhabited, I am Jehovah and there is none else. Now that does not mean that Jesus is not Jehovah or the Holy Spirit is not Jehovah. It means there is no other God. The one God whether it be the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, is called Jehovah in the Bible. Another place in Isaiah 45, 22 and 23, Jehovah says, Unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. We turn to Philippians 2, 9 and 10, which we did last time. And there it has reference to Jesus, before whom every knee and every tongue shall exalt him. Another and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of Jehovah shall be delivered. That's from Joel, the Old Testament prophet, chapter 2 and verse 
32. Peter uses that same scripture. Paul uses it. And both times they apply it to Jesus. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, but in the Old Testament it's Jehovah, referring to Jesus, shall be saved. So here's another case where Jesus is referred to as Jehovah. Isaiah 40 and verse 3, The voice of one that crieth, Prepare ye in the wilderness the way of Jehovah. Remember the name. Make level in the desert a highway for our God. And that is applied in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and by John the Baptist himself to Jesus. Let me read the reply that John the Baptist gave. There were those who were sent from Jerusalem down to John. They want to know, John, what is your role? Who are you? They want to know, are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Beginning at verse 19, and this is the witness of John, that's the Baptist, when the Jews sent unto him from Jerusalem priests and Levites to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed. And denied not. And he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, we're told in Luke that he came in the power and the spirit of Elijah. But he did not come in the, in the, the flesh of Elijah. And he said, and then they asked, Art thou the prophet? They make a distinction between the prophet and the, the Christ. And he answered, No. Then said they therefore unto him, Who art thou? That we may give answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou thyself? Now notice John's answer. He said, I am the voice. He's just the voice, he says. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as said Isaiah the prophet. But when Isaiah wrote it, he said Jehovah. As is just another case where the term, the name Jehovah is applied to Jesus. I'll give you one more example of this. In John, the gospel, chapter 12, there were enemies there that didn't accept Jesus. And so John quotes Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 10 and he applies that to those who deliberately or who disbelieve Jesus and then says these things said Isaiah quoting John now because he saw his glory and he spake of him that's verses 37 through 41 because he Isaiah saw his Christ's glory now in Isaiah chapter 6, from whence John quotes, Isaiah speaks of seeing Jehovah of hosts on his throne, and the whole earth is full of his glory. In verse 5, for mine eyes have seen the King, Jehovah of hosts. John says that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ when he saw the glory of Jehovah of hosts. So those are just uh, some things that I wanted to notice with you. That the name Jehovah is applied directly to Jesus. Well, another thing we want to notice about Jesus, 
<clears throat> is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And there are, there are quite a few. In fact, Jesus used this procedure. You remember on the way to Emmaus with the two? We read, and beginning from Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24 and verse 27. Then later that day when he came back to Jerusalem, he did the same thing for the apostles. They had to be convinced that he was the one prophesied in the Old Testament. H.P. Leiden says that there are 332 distinct prophecies in the Old Testament which have been literally fulfilled by Jesus Christ. 332. These refer to Jesus' birth, to his ministry, his resurrection, his coronation, in every aspect of his earthly life. The mathematical probability of all of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person is stated like this. One to 84 followed by 97 zeros. Now, we can begin to comprehend such odds. One to 84 followed by 97 zeros. You know, we talk about millions and billions, and now we're, the government's gotten us into trillions. Well, up to trillions, that's just 12 zeros. We're talking about 97 zeros, which shows you it's just impossible. So only the Holy Spirit could have predicted these things, and only the Son of God could have fulfilled all of them, all 332. Now, let me look at some of these uh, Old Testament prophecies with you. When one considers all the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, now we generally say, you'll find those in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's true. That's where we look to read about the, the life of Christ. But we can also look in the Old Testament. And when we do, it can be said that the life of Christ is recorded in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Think about it. Jesus said that the Old Testament scriptures bore witness of him. In John 5, he addresses those who did not believe him. In verse 39, he says, Ye search the scriptures because ye think that in them ye have eternal life. And these are they which bear witness of me. These are the Old Testament scriptures bear witness of me. Look at verse 45 through 47. Jesus is still speaking. He says, Think not that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, on whom ye have set your hope. For if ye believe Moses, ye would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe, how shall ye believe my words? Jesus said, they bear testimony that I am who I claim to be. Well, let's look at certain aspects. We'll not look at his family. He used to be a seed of Abraham, of Judah, of David, and he fulfilled that. 
Also, we find these two prophecies concerning his virgin birth. The first one goes all the way back to Genesis 3:15. After Adam and Eve sinned, and he addresses himself to Satan in the form of the serpent, the instrument Satan used, he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Now think about her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he bruised Satan's head, his power and his authority. When he was crucified, his heel, in comparison, was, was bruised. That's Genesis 3.15. Let me read another. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7.14. He goes on to explain that Emmanuel means God with us. A virgin is going, to give a, is going to give birth to God. Well, the fulfillment. In the first prophecy, we notice in Genesis 3.15, her seed eliminates the man. She's going to be a virgin. Even though the law of human procreation requires both male and female. The virgin of Isaiah, according to Matthew and Luke, was married. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. She's spoken of as his wife, but they did not live together. This was just their custom in those days. And to get a divorce after they had to get a divorce, even when they were just uh, engaged, betrothed. She was betrothed to Joseph, but that was before they came together. She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. What about the place of birth? That's also prophesied in Micah 5 and 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah is another name for Bethlehem or the area round about. Both names are used, especially in the Old Testament. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, which art little to be among the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall one come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are of old from everlasting. Well, that's obvious. It's talking about Jesus. He's the one who is eternal from everlasting. He's the one that's the ruler of Israel, as Nathaniel uh, recognized him. And you remember when the wise men came, the star was guiding them, and it guided them to Jerusalem first, before Bethlehem. And they went in and they asked, uh, well, where is the king of the Jews to be born? And they asked the scribes, and they quoted this scripture, Bethlehem. And so they started back to Bethlehem, and the star guided them the rest of the way. The fulfillment. This rule of Israel coming out of Bethlehem is from everlasting. We know he was in the beginning, as we read in John 1 and 1. Also described as the Alpha and the beginning, Alpha and the Omega, that's the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. Bethlehem was to be honored as the birthplace of the Christ. 700 years later, after Isaiah prophesied, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the first Caesar, uh, that all the world should be enrolled, everyone to his own city. But both Mary and Joseph were of the seed of uh, Judah. But of course, just the men had to go for that enrollment, but she went along. 
and she was expecting Jesus. Now, because of this decree from the Caesar, Joseph brought Mary from Nazareth in Galilee to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And we can see the providence of God, how the providential hand of God through an unrelated governmental decree brought this virgin to the right city at the right time to fulfill Micah's prophecy. Micah specified Bethlehem of Judah to distinguish it from Bethlehem of Zebulon. There were two Bethlehems back in that day. And we said all of that talking about the birth of Jesus that shows he was born of a virgin. He is the son of God. And we have other proofs, but we have to pause.